We're taking our Bibles, we're going to Titus chapter 2. Titus 2, we're turning there, we're continuing a series that is talking about the family. And this morning we're focusing on one of the areas of the family that I want to continue where I was two weeks ago in the study, and that is sometimes the competition that takes place. We know that there's all kinds of competition that takes place between males and females. In fact, if I were just to throw this out, who's the better drivers, male or female? Well, let's see. Let's see by video how good the ladies are. The one area we can't afford to be in competition, we can joke about the driving, but we can't afford to be in competition when it comes to raising our kids. We can't be doing that when we're, when we're building a marriage. We have to be working together. We've talked about some principles about the family and the family unit that I want to remind you about. In this series, in Psalm 127, it says, Except the Lord build the house, they that labor, labor in vain. The principle we talked about a few weeks ago is without God you will fail to raise godly kids. If without God you cannot succeed in raising godly kids. Now my focus in this series is parenting, but this applies to every aspect of your marriage. Husbands, wives, whether you've been married seven days or 70 years like some of our folk here, you need to have God as a part of your relationship. Number two principle we said this. Psalm 127 verse 3 with children it says, Lo, children are a what of the Lord? their inheritance or an heritage. Our kids are not ours alone. As parents we need to realize they belong to the Lord. We cannot do with them as we please because they're my kids. We said principle number three. That one where as a parent in particular, parenting is more about addressing what the kids are than what the kids do. That is what we don't, won't do. We need to focus on behavior, but more than behavior, we need to talk about who they are, what they believe, how, why they do what they do. And so we go for the heart. We parent the heart first and foremost. The, the area that we're talking about here last, a couple weeks ago and today is this. The fourth principle, you will not be a good parent if you do not work at being a godly spouse, first of all. And it's based on that idea that a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. That whole principle tells me these types of thoughts. It tells me that as, as a man, as a husband, as a father, that my first responsibility is to focus on Deb. And it's when the Lord gave us children, they were an addition to our family, but we need to focus on our relation first and foremost. And if you wait until your parents to figure this out, it'll be too late. What you need to do, even in the early parts of your marriage, is you need to parent as partners. What I mean by that is this. You're not saying that it's her job alone or it's his job alone. You're not in competition. You're not vying against each other for the heart of the kid. Rather, you're supporting each other. You are working at as a couple that's saying we are a team before God Almighty raising the kids that God has given us. Now, some of you no longer have that team member because of death, because of divorce, but you still have to come to the point that says, okay, I've got to really work on my relationship with God. If you're married, then you have to work at saying we're part Partners. That is critical. Then number two, you need to prioritize your mate. That is, your partner has to become the first and most important person in your family relationships. Why is that? We gave two reasons. Because your marriage is your primary relationship according to the Word of God. We go back to the Word of God, we find that the first social unit was not parents with kids. It was husband and wife. We go back in the Word of God and we find out that every text that deals with family, it talks about husband and wife before it deals with parent relationships. We find that the idea of parenting is to train children to go out and establish their own home. In other words, they're not going to be a part of our home forever and ever. That leads us to this thought. Why prioritize my mate? Because this relationship is the permanent one. Not the one I have with my kids. My kids are always going to be my kids, but it's not, it's not the same. You see, the Bible teaches that the relationship that I have with Deb is to be ongoing. And so I focus on that relationship as the primary one more than, okay, my relationship with Tony or Ben or Becky or Shelley. What I need to be focusing on is what the passage says. Leaving father and mother, cleaving to my wife, being glued together with her to be, keep on becoming one flesh. The Bible talks this idea that husbands, you're to keep on dwelling with your wives according to knowledge. We read in the Word of God, so that the two that are put together 
become one flesh. What God therefore has joined together, let no man put asunder or separate. We know that the Word of God teaches that we prioritize our mate. Now our question that we've been talking about last two weeks ago and today is this, how do I do that? Two ways. One is fulfilling my duties that God has given me towards my spouse and the other one is increasing my desires towards my spouse, my affection towards her and vice versa to develop a closer relationship. How does that happen? What do I do? Well God has given specific duties to the husbands. God has given specific duties to the wives. There's a whole bunch of things mentioned but I'm going to bring them down into just a few for the husbands and a few for the wives and a little bit more for the ladies just because they can multitask better than the men. And so what we're looking at is these few very clear commands in the Word of God. One of them we talked about two weeks ago and that is to the husbands that the husbands are supposed to provide leadership in the home to their wife, to their kids. We talked about why that is and we pointed out several passages of Scripture that talk about the husband being the head of the home, the, the head of the woman. We've mentioned all this. We gave several different observations of what this kind of looks like. That it doesn't mean he does all the decision making but he gets the input. He talks about it. He makes sure as the leader that the family isn't overwhelmed or overburdened. He does things that are good for the whole family. We talked about the idea of providing protection as the leader. We talked about being the best example as the leader in the family. Making sure that everyone is provided for socially, financially, but even spiritually, emotionally. We talked about this aspect of leadership. Giving direction to the home. It may not mean you are in total control of every moment, every time, but you're giving direction. When you find out there's a problem, how do you deal with that problem? It is using the gifts, the talents, the wisdom. It's participating. It's being the spiritual leader in the home. That it should be the men who are saying, let's get to church. Let's do Bible reading. Let's do some praying together. We talked about leadership, giving clear instructions, and not, not giving away your responsibilities, but being on top of what's going on. Taking the initiative in that family. Helping the family to realize how we can lead. Being the one who exercises primary discipline when you're there. Being respectful. Giving the example. If there's a, a lousy phone call to make, you take the phone call. You lead. You, you be the leader in the home. And being aware of what's going on. We talked about the wives a couple weeks ago. We said, what does that mean? That if the man's the leader, she's supposed to be submissive. Now that's a dirty word in our language, but it's a real biblical word. Submit to your own husband. It doesn't mean that you are less of a person. In fact, Titus says you're supposed to be taught how to be obedient to the husbands. And again, that isn't like that little child aspect, but it is basically doing this. It is allowing him to lead in the family. Allowing him to be able to be the one to have the leadership and the discipline. To give the direction in the financial matters. To speak to him and let him be the spokesperson. It's the idea of, of not arguing or contradicting, but working. And so being the one who says, I want him to be more of the leader of the home. I want him to give the direction. We said as well, wives are supposed to be working at also being supportive of their husband. That idea we took from the idea of Ephesians chapter 5 where it says, see that she reverenced the husband, even as Sarah respected him and supported him. That still goes all the way back to the beginning of creation where God made woman to be a helpmeet. That is not a competitor, but a complement to the man. That the idea that she's going to complete him, she's going to help be suitable to him. She's a supporter of him. She is one who helps him, who builds him up. She is helping him to do his job. She's not being disrespectful, mocking, ridiculing. She's not doing the whatever. She isn't getting with the girls and tearing down and mocking and carrying on about her husband. But rather what she's doing is showing respect by building on him, bragging on him, be speaking kindly of him, cutting off critical remarks from the kids as well, asking him Bible questions to help him to feel like he has input and impact in that area. We said that the husbands were supposed to not only lead but they're to love. The passages of Scripture abound in Ephesians 5 where the husbands are to love their wives, that they are to love them as Christ loved the church, as their own bodies. If we were to define that simply we would say that means that I'm supposed to seek to meet the needs of my wife. I put her needs above my wants. I'm supposed to be sacrificing for her. I'm supposed to be making sure that she is spiritually being led, fulfilled, that knows that, know that I value her and that I appreciate her. That's the idea of loving. Like Christ does the church. Like you do for your own self where you make time for yourself. You make time for yourself to have some time off to kind of relax, guys. Do you do that with your wife at the house? 
you know, to help give her attention and to build her up. What else does the Bible say about the husbands? We didn't talk about this one. You're to be the laborer. Husbands are to be the leaders, the lovers, the laborers. In the Bible, it makes it very clear that if a man provide not for his own family, especially of his own household, it says that he is worse than an infidel. He has denied the faith. Now there's a lot that we can talk about. We can talk about integrity. We can talk about honesty. We can talk about putting in a good day's work. We can talk about not relying upon others to provide for your family. We can talk about how we should take responsibility for our family. Not our family looking to the government to take care of us, but rather we provide for them. That we provide for the education. That we provide in all these areas. That we men take the responsibility of laboring, working hard, not being slothful, not putting off. There's a whole other series that could be talked about. The man and his work. For sake of today, let me leave it here. You're to be the laborer. And the reason I'm getting off this one quickly is because most everyone here, you fulfill this without any issue. You work hard, you provide, and your wives would probably stand up and say, he does. But if you're one of those that you are just becoming lazy, take it to heart. The Spirit of God does not want you to be a lazy person. wants you to be the laborer in the home. The Word of God talks about the wife and tells something else that the wife should do. We're taking our Bibles and we're headed towards Titus chapter 2. And I'll join you there once I find my Bible here. Okay, Titus chapter 2. We're talking in a text where he is writing, and this is an important text, where Titus is being told, what you do as the pastor of the church is get your church together, and what you do is you have the older ladies teach the younger ladies, have the older men teach the younger men. And one of the things that he says he wants the older ladies to teach the younger ladies is in verse 3. Titus 2 verse 3, the aged woman likewise that be in behavior has becomes holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. What should they do? Verse 4, that they teach the young woman to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, so that the word of God be not blasphemed. Now that passage is loaded. And it's giving directives to the younger mothers in particular, well to the older ladies who are already supposed to have this as a part of their life and they can model it. But he's saying here's what the ladies are to focus on. One of the areas that he says in this text is that of working in the household where he talks about the idea in the text that he says keepers at home. Now I want you to catch something about all of these traits. They are learned. They are not something that is natural. They are something that has to be taught, that has to be explained, that has to give instruction. He is probably referring to the idea that in Bible days and even a couple generations ago in America it was pretty clear that most young ladies were growing up in the company or in the surroundings where their older uh, relatives, aunts or grandmothers or even their mothers were close by and they could keep on instructing them in areas of how to love their children, in areas of how to to be sober, how to keep the house. Well, that's kind of gotten away from us here in this country. We're kind of spread all over. And so then it becomes more of the, uh, the job of the church ladies to teach one another. And he says, you're supposed to be giving this instruction. Now that means that some of these things are not natural. That means they have to be taught. It also means, if he's talking this way, that these are very important traits for the younger moms, for the ladies to know, to make, to make and to note. It means as well that these are traits that what you need to do is be working on early even before you get married, even before you become a a mom, that you start thinking about what does God's word require of me. Now one of the things is keepers at home. What does that mean? Does that, what's that idea when he says teach the younger ladies? It's this idea that I put up here. Those who keep the home. Those who make sure that things are being done there or in the house. Is he talking about the idea of of housework? Probably. Is he talking about the idea of having things organized? Probably. That's the Proverbs 31 about that lady who has the management of the house and the preparation of the house. It's the idea that she is seeing overseeing that things are being done and kept so that there's an orderliness to the house, whether it be in a cleanliness orderliness or whether it be in a management style, whether it be in the groceries and the food and the clothing and things of that sort. And so what he's talking about in this passage, some would run to and say right away, well that passage there for keepers at home, it means that God intends for only the woman to do the housework. Some husband might even be sitting here and saying God's word forbids me to do the ironing. God's word forbids me from doing the cooking. God's word says I should never help you in the cleaning because you're to be the keeper of the home. Um, I would disagree with that. 
Okay, I would disagree with that wholeheartedly. I don't think that's what he's meaning. I don't think that when he says, teach the younger woman to be keepers at home, that it is a pass for the husbands to be a slob and never contribute. Now, I like to do the slob part, but I really think that biblically that I have, I have responsibility to help in those areas. Now, the reason I say all that is this. It is no, it is no more teaching the idea that that men are not to work and help out with the housework any more than Proverbs 31 is saying that only men are to work outside the house. Because in Proverbs 31 it talks about the virtuous woman also buying and selling and doing some business and that she has that capability of working with property or merchandise so she has some interest outside the home, an interest that she is able to maintain the, uh, while she is first and primarily taking care of her household. That's not for everybody. For some, they can't do both. But that virtuous woman of Proverbs 31 is showing that she's, she's able to. She's, a, she's able to do both. And it's implying that ladies do have the opportunity, the advantage they have the uh, permission from the Word of God to at times have vested interests outside the home as long as the keeper of the home, the keeping of the home, isn't going by the wayside. By the way, uh, let me share another text. To say that men are never supposed to be in the kitchen and the Word of God forbids that, you're saying that Abraham, who his wife called Lord, he shouldn't have been helping to prepare the meal for the angels that, that were visiting. But he did. He got involved with it. He did the butchering. He did the preparation, if you read the text in particular. And there's no condemnation of him doing the barbecuing. Amen, amen, amen. So the men can do some of that. It's the children, in fact, if we're being practical, kids need to be taught some life skills skills. You know, it didn't happen on this trip, but we've had plenty of missions trips over the years that it amazes me how some teenagers are getting ready to leave home and they still don't have a clue how to fold any, any clothes, how to run a wash machine. Whoa, that ought to be an interesting experience in the dorm, okay? But it's just some simple life skills. When we were in China several years ago, they said that was the biggest problem. The only child grows up, one child in the family, and those children are so spoiled and so taken care of that when they get away from home, they have no idea how to do any of the normal life skills. If you're training your kids properly, you want to give them the ability that if they have to live on their own, that their place isn't going to be a hazard sign saying, for, you know, caution, stay out of this room or apartment. You want to give them some life skills. And so give them some of that training. In fact, 1 Timothy 5, talking about the woman's role, it says this, I will therefore that the younger woman guide the house. It's a different word that's used in Titus. The guide means to give management, direction. It is the idea of being the one in control or the one who's in charge of the household. So in other words, what he's saying is that the ladies, their responsibility, according to this text, and something that they need to be taught, is how to oversee all the needs of the house, how to take care of the groceries, how to plan and prepare ahead. It takes a skill set for some to learn how to plan menus so that financially you're not running to the store every day and picking up stuff and paying high bucks. It takes a skill set to know how to organize and prepare the clothing and to work with those types of items. It's the wife's responsibility. In fact, she's the manager of the household. So I think in my mind, and according to the Word of God, I don't need to go over the grocery list with my wife. It's the last thing in the world I want to do is go shopping, number one, and number two, go over the grocery list. That is her responsibility, her venue of, of authority. That is her skill set. That is something she can manage. In fact, the Word of God encourages ladies, be in charge of those things. Men, as a leader, you're using her skill sets. You're letting her to have some of those responsibilities. And you're listening to her input, her advice to say when the kids need the clothing. When we need to expand that food budget. When you say to her, you know, how much did you spend at the grocery? And she says, well, you know, I'm feeding a family of six. And I think we, can, we need to have more than $50 a week to do it. You know, listen to her advice. It's probably going to cost more than $50 to feed a family of six. I don't know where you can do that. Even, even at the, uh, the Amish stores, I don't think you can get away with it for that. But listen to her. Take her advice. Let her lead and, and manage and, and, and as well guide in those areas. Something else the ladies were supposed to be taught. You look in Titus 2 and it says something else that is really interesting. It says an area for the ladies to be taught is how to be sensible. How to be sensible. Now your, your Bible and mine read a little bit different. It says in this text as we go through 
It says that they may teach the woman to be sober, to love their children, to, to be discreet. The sober and discreet have similar ideas one with another. The one has the idea, the discreet, if we were to do that, has the idea of sophron. It is to be prudent. It is the idea to be discerning, sound of mind. The, and I forgot to put it up here. The word for sober means to be self-controlled. An individual who is self-controlled, somebody who is, has got their emotions, their mindset, they're under control, and they are making wise decisions. And so he says, this is something you need to teach the younger woman. The older ladies are supposed to talk about how to be sober, how to be discreet, how to be wise in your decision making. Again, this is learned. This isn't natural. It's necessary to be developed. This is something that the high school ladies should be working on. Learning how to be discreet. Learning how to be self-controlled. It would show itself up in several different ways in your life. It would be the idea that you are self-controlled enough that you aren't explosive, you aren't rash, you aren't out of control. We were visiting with family in Portugal last Sunday. And this family in Portugal is having a problem with their neighbors. And they are very distraught. It reminded us of one of our families who's having problems with their neighbors. To the point that the police are involved. To the point that they have gone to court with it. In the case in Portugal it started with the lady in the house next door. The lady in the house next door, she came over one one day and she brought flowers, she brought food they thought they were getting along fine for several weeks but all of a sudden one day the lady from next door came over and says, I've decided that what we would like to do is we have a, a plot of ground out back, we want to bring our tractor and drive up your driveway and go through your backyard to get to our plot of ground on the back of your yard. Well the people who own the property say we don't really want a tractor driving through our backyard it's not good for the kids, it's not good for the lawn, it's just not good. And they said, besides, you have a driveway that leads to that field out back. Well, it's bumpy. And yours is smoother. So we want to use your yard. No. So then it started. The notes, the graffiti, the broken windows, the loud music that's put with the speakers out the window aimed right at their house. The campaign started to the point that just a few weeks ago when they went to church. Now in the, in the country of Portugal it's a little bit different. You have walls around your yard and everybody basically has a gate. You open the gate, you drive into your driveway, you close your gate. And so you keep whatever animals, kids, everything, everything's in a block wall with a gate. They came home from church a few weeks ago and the gate was taken down. How do you take somebody's gate? A metal gate. They just took it off the, the hooks and they stole their gate. And they put the little note let us use your yard or else. And then the next week, they, you know, they said, no, we're still not going. The next week, they were out in their backyard. This couple from the church were enjoying, and all of a sudden, this woman came over and says, you still won't let us use your yard for our driveway? And they said, no. She said, get them. And she sigged her family member, who was a big thug, who had, was visiting, she sigged her younger brother or nephew upon the man to beat him up. And she stood there and she was yelling, hit him harder, hit him harder until they say yes. Is she a sophron woman? Is she a sensible woman? Most of you are thinking what I'm thinking. She ought to be locked up, right? He is saying in this text, you are supposed to be not a rash, not an explosive, out of control person. Now that woman we're talking about is really an extreme out of control. But do you beat people up with your lips? Do you think these ideas of striking out and dwell upon them? Do you, are you harsh with your speech that if you don't get your way, you're going to make life miserable for him or for anybody else? He says, now wait a minute, ladies. You need to be taught in this area to be sensible. That is self-control. That is that you're making wise, discreet decisions. That you're thinking through finances. That you are being careful in your, what you say and what you do to build up, not tear down your marriage. That you're helping your kids. You're realizing the, the consequences of your decisions that you might make. That you say, okay, I want to make this purchase or that purchase, but you're under self-control and discreet enough that you say, wait a minute, this would be too much. This would put us in real jeopardy financially. This would not be wise. And you don't do it. You don't pick the fights. You don't pick the battles. You don't go out and react and, ex and be extreme. And you know what you do as a mom? You get to know your kids. 
You discern their personality. You find out their skill set. You, you watch them. You learn them. And you figure out what is the best way to communicate with them. How do I get to their heart? That's a sophron woman. That's the sensible woman who is examining and learning, who is taking time to pause and to think through what she says, how she's going to say it, to build up in the family, not to tear down. Even though you've told him 300,000 times about that leaky faucet, there is a wise way to say it again, and there is an explosive way. Be sophron. Be sensible. The Word of God talks about the wives to do something else. And that is not only to be sensible, but be the sweetheart. Look at what the text says. That they may teach the young woman to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. I'm going to save the love of the children, but I want to talk about loving their husbands. The word that he uses here is really interesting. Now this is a thought that he says, I want you to love your husband. This is for all you wives. No matter how long you've been married. No matter for those of you who are yet to get married, he's saying to you, you need to be taught how to love your husbands. But you're saying we're engaged, we're, we're dating and he is the light of my life. I am just so thrilled by him. Nobody has to teach me. No, that's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God says in this text there's a certain type of love that you need to learn, that you need to be taught and you need to work on. And that love is for all the wives to be focusing on. It comes from the word phileo here is the basic. It is having the idea of being a friend. It is the idea of delighting in somebody. It is the idea of learning to think positive about that person. It is the idea of enjoying and liking them and wanting to be with them and spending time with them. It is the idea that you are focused and you are really excited about being with that person. If we were to put this into, into how it looks day in and day out, we would say it would mean that you're working at doing things together with him. Finding things that make good memories for the two of you. Being that type of person, that a friend that takes an interest in what he likes. At least enough that you can converse about it. Encouraging him. Like a friend encourages you. Listening to him. Supporting him. And so when you get in conversation, giving the pause to listen and not jump in. Being the friend that is polite, that is being, being encouraging. Now I know this happens with the guys too, way too much, that we tune out the wives, we'll get to that in a minute, we tune out the wives and the kids because of other things, but I am hearing more and more and more in counseling how the wives are tuning out the husbands because of the texting. Because all of a sudden something on the computer is taking more attention than talking with the spouse. And it can dominate and it can take over appreciating his efforts. Your friends probably tell you that they appreciate you. Your friends probably tell you how, how they value this in the friendship, that you have a good skill set, that you are wise in this area or that area. Do you do that with your husband? Being a friend of his is one that is saying, let's, let's serve together. Let's find some common interests. Let's make time together. I, I wonder how many of you with little kids have taken the time to even go on a date. You say, well, we, we, we can't. What do you mean you can't? Well, you don't understand. We have little kids in the house. Been there, done that. We had four. And they didn't seem to grow up. Okay, they're, they're all four of them were there. And you say, well, did you have time for dating? Yes. We knew that it was necessary. If you ask my wife, did we do it enough? She's going to say, absolutely, positively not. But it was important that we spend some time together. Well, didn't you feel guilty? Sure. But more important was my relationship with Deb than the relationship with the kids. If we didn't have a good relationship, then I'd be a lousy dad to the kids. And so we need to do the dating. You say, can't afford it. Well, then share with some other couples and swap. Barter some time where you can get away. It's, it's a shame that if you say, we've, ever since we've had kids for the last two years or so, we've never had a night out for ourselves. Boy, you need to prioritize your spouse. You need to, wives, you need to say, those kids will survive. They will, they, 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 they will manage with somebody else watching them. My wife keeps on telling the story to younger moms. She says, now listen, you need to be able to let the kids at home at times, not alone, okay, let the kids at home, and probably not with me either, but let the kids go, and you, you need to be able to put a little bit, the kids will be fine, and you need to talk. And she talks about the story about the first time she went shopping after our first one was born. She said it was so hard to leave the baby at home with me. No, I think there was more, just to leave the baby at home. But she went to the store. She got all the way to the store. She got in, got the grocery cart, walking down the aisle, crying about abandoning her child. She says, I left the cart. I walked back to the car. I drove home, came back, and he was fine. Okay? I was sound asleep too, but the baby was fine. Okay? 
And it was a learning experience that said, wait a minute, we've got to be able to let the kids be alone, some, not be alone, but be with somebody else so we can have our alone time. That's friendship. Friendship is that type of spending time with each other. What else, ladies? It's be snazzy. Okay, this is a biblical word from the Hebrew. Snazzy, okay. Okay. There's two passages that talk about it. In fact, you're close to this. If we head over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. For those of you who thought I was serious, I'm not. 1 Peter 3. There is no Hebrew snazzy. Um, he, 1 Peter 3. Watch something here. Ladies, this is talking something very, very important for you. And that is looking good to your husband. You know, mm-mm, looking good. Here we go. 1 Peter chapter 3. He is talking in this text to the ladies. And he makes comment, who's adorning, let it not be the outward adorning of the plating of the hair, the wearing of the gold, the putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And he goes on, talks a little bit more about this, and gives the example of Sarah. Let, let's just take that passage. Let's just focus on this for a little bit. This passage is saying that you need to become attractive to your husband. That is appealing to him. That is that you are looking good to him, that he wants to be with you, that he's attracted to you, that you're fulfilling some of that desires, his desires for you. That looking, that looking attractive involves two areas. One of the areas that's implied in this passage, in this text, is your speech, is your attitude towards him. You see, in the Bible, it says this, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but he who shames him is rottenness to the bones. She who puts him down, she who ridicules him, who mocks him, who makes him the brunt of her jokes, is as rottenness to his bones. We read elsewhere, it is better to live in a desert, that land that is in a waterless region, than in a house shared with a brawling, crabby, cranky, moping, miserable, grumpy woman. He makes comment further. He says, it is better to live in the corner of the roof. I want to go live on that flat piece over there by the air conditioners in you know, the building than in a house shared with a cranky, grumpy woman. Now, he never says this about men. That's because men never get grumpy. <laughs> no, men never get ungrumpy. Okay, but he's talking about the woman here. Watch what he says. A constant dripping on the day of a steady rain and a cranky woman are alike. Drip, drip. It's like when you're trying to sleep and you hear that faucet. Drip, drip, drip. Or you're listening to her and you're going, drip, drip, drip. And he goes a little bit further. He says, to restrain her, to stop her from that. It's like trying to hold back the wind, trying to grab a fistful of oil with your right hand and hold it. It's an impossible deed to get her to shut up. And he says, now, ladies... You got to worry on the work on these areas. And he says, the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish one tears it down. May I suggest that the way most families are torn down, it's by her mouth, by how she speaks to and about him or the kids. That there is a problem here that God's word addresses so many times and says, ladies, you got to give this attention. You got to be, maybe it's because he is such a disappointment at times. Maybe it's because the kids are driving in nuts. Maybe it's because of all the pressure of what you have to do at the house. All of that may be true, but it's not an excuse to become a grumpy person, a cranky person. Maybe it's because you don't feel good. Certain times you feel even worse. That's no excuse. That's no excuse. You need to be one who makes yourself attractive to your husband. You need to, as this passage says, draw him to you. How? Well, it's not by nagging. It's not by always being argumentative. It's not always, you know, the I told you so. It's not like those statements, those fighting words, I should have listened to my mother. Okay? It's not those things. Okay? Rather, the text talks about this. Put on a meek and quiet spirit. Does it mean that you can never talk? No. Does it mean that you should, as an individual, that, that you're supposed to always keep your opinions? Oh, that is not what the text says at all. The idea is that how you approach, how you speak, not only in what you say, but how you say it is so vital, ladies. It is so important. You know, he says, put on a meek and quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is great price. You want to know some fact from this text? The fact is this. The reality of the text is very clear. Your inner beauty, the inner beauty that you display to your husband is so, so important. It is more important than the hairdo, the makeup, 
the jewelry. It is more important to him than all the other physical things. It's your character. It's your personality. It's how you say things and what you say. In fact, it's not only important to your husband, it's important to your God. Your God evaluates you more by your, by your words than by your wardrobe. Your God is so concerned about this that he says, here's what you need to do. You need to work on the area of showing that submissive spirit to your husband, to showing a sincere holiness, to showing a meek and quiet spirit, to having respect in your speech. He's advocating all this because this makes you more appealing to your spouse. This is what's going to make him come closer to you is by the fact that you, you are a strong person. You're not a doormat to sin. You're not a weak individual. In fact, just the opposite. You're a very strong individual to be able to bring things into control. You're a very strong individual to have that meek and quiet spirit when he does the same stupid thing that you warned him not to do. That meek and quiet spirit is so important, so vital. We've done so many house projects in our older home that we had. We did all kinds of things. And my wife would have, in her wisdom, would say to me sometimes, maybe you shouldn't hit that board and knock that board out. And it was like, what does she know? She's just a woman. I know how to hit this thing, and I'm good at destroying stuff. So I'd knock this board out, and then we'd have more problems. And she wouldn't say anything. She would just smile and walk away. (laughs) And then I'd giggle a little bit too. Why? The meek and quiet spirit. To know what to say, when to say, and when not to say it. By the way, you need to make yourself snazzy, not only in the words you say, this is the Word of God encouraging, but in the way you look. In, the way, in this passage, in this passage, this frustrates me. I, I hear it all the time. I heard it just a few weeks ago in this community. Somebody said, see, First Peter says we're not supposed to wear. Look at verse 3. It says that you're not supposed to have the plating of the hair. You're not supposed to have the wearing of gold. You know, it, this passage forbids all jewelry. It forbids all makeup. It forbids fixing up your hair. Well, if that's the case, what else is it forbidding at the end of verse 3? Putting on of clothes. I don't think, okay, I don't think he's, pro, he's saying, let's have a nudist colony here, okay? So let's not abuse the text. Let's use the text the right way. He is talking about working with your appearance. That what you can do is you should work at saying, okay, let's not forget the outer appearance. Let's be, let's be real, okay? Let's be a little bit frank here. Men are really visual-oriented. It's the visual that gets the men. It draws them. They're, 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 we're compelled by visual. It happens in, in, in just being attracted and even arousal aspects. We're very visual. That's the way we are, okay? Wives, remember this that the visual is important. He's not saying abandon all of your appearance whatsoever and just speak nice. He's saying give some attention to this. Give the attention that says, okay, what I should do is I should probably pay some attention. We'll come back to 1 Timothy 2 in a minute where it talks about fashionable appearance. But he's talking in this this, this, uh, text of Scripture that what you need to do is give this some focus. It shouldn't be your major focus that you are a nag, but you're really a pretty nag. That's not what he's advocating. He is saying what you need to do is you need to be very attractive in your speech and make that and your character, that's most important. But at the same time, be concerned about your appearance. Give some attention to your appearance. In what he talks about in 1 Timothy, he says, woman, and this is an important text, woman adorn themselves in mosques. It's a command. Woman, you adorn yourselves is literally what the Greek reads. It's, it's not the aspect that Timothy, your pastor, you tell the ladies how to dress. That is not what I'm supposed to do. It says, ladies, nor my wife. Okay? Ladies, you dress yourselves, is literally the, the uh, Greek. You dress yourselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety. Interesting if you dissect that verse. When he talks about it, modest apparel means well-arranged looks good, suitable. We usually think the modest apparel is talking about making sure, you know, we're, we're being cautious about what can be seen with length here. Actually, it's talking more about well-arranged, what is proper, what looks good, what is suitable for the occasion. What he talks about in the text was shamefacedness. Now you're getting into that area of what are you trying to show off? What are you trying to portray here? What are you trying to draw to yourself? Okay, now we're talking about modern-day modesty when he talks about shamefacedness, that what you should do is be careful how you dress. And by the way, let me encourage this. Moms, please continue to teach the teens how to dress. 
please talk about this. The guys need it as well as the girls. How to dress, how to sit, how to conduct themselves, how to be careful when they're sitting and they, if the room is arranged in such a way that it's metal chairs and not a pews, to be careful how they cross their legs when people are sitting across the room. Very practical areas that need to be taught, yes? Okay? You know, what type of proper outfit is a little bit too tight? Okay? And drawing the attention that shouldn't be drawn. That's an appropriate area to be taught. He goes a little bit further and he says, of sobriety, or is, is the idea of sobriety in dressing is you have to dress what fits you. Different bodies have different styles. Different people have different colors. You need to be wise. And by the way, this is probably something that should be taught more and more of what type of attire is the proper attire for different body shapes. And this is appropriate. And it's important, moms, it's important, wives, that you learn this so that you maintain an attractiveness towards your husband or for your husband. The Word of God encourages it. There's a whole text. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which talks about the covering of the hair. And it's all about when you go out in public, how you dress in public, so you do not shame your head. The passage goes on and says, your head is your husband. And so you dress in a way that when you go out in public, you don't bring shame to your husband because the wife dresses, whew, to the point that when somebody wants to talk to, and, and I, men, you've gotten in these conversations when you're trying to talk to somebody and you have to look away. He's saying that shouldn't be the case for a Christian woman to cause, or a Christian teen, to cause people to have to avert their eyes. The whole passage is so much there that I don't want to take time. It'll take too much time. Here you go, ladies. You multitask so much better than we, we men. How you doing? Submission, supportive, sensible, sweet on, or sweetheart, snazzy, okay? All those biblical terms to be working on. Let's, let's take a minute here. Let's talk about the guys. We've done enough with the ladies. Wake them up, ladies. Give them the elbow. It's time, okay? Here we go. Guys, here's what you do. The, according to 1 Peter chapter 3, it says... In the, in the text, it talks about verse 7. It says, Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them, the wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together the grace of life, and that your prayers be not hindered. You're to live with her. That passage is talking about dwelling with knowledge. It's interesting that the word dwell has two different ideas here. There are two different possible ideas. One is you don't desert. You don't leave. And that's because in the society that Peter's dealing with, a lot of the middle class men had... Uh, they had their wives, but they also had sweethearts and mistresses. And he is saying you don't abandon your wife. You focus on your wife, not your mistress who is half the age or whatever. He says you live with your wife. You focus on your wife. You just don't go to your home with your wife and kids once in a while, but then you basically cohabitate here with this other woman more frequently. And he's forbidding that. He's stopping that. He's saying, no, no, you dwell with her. She is to be your focus point. The word that he uses here for dwell is to keep on, keep on, keep on. It is giving me this impression that according to this text, it is the husband's responsibility to do everything possible to keep the marriage together. We in our society, we abdicate that and seem to put it on the ladies. But this text says, men, it is your role to really keep wooing her. It is your role to really keep her pleased and happy. It is your role to promote the unity in the home. In fact, that makes so much sense to me when I finally dawned upon me that in Genesis it says, a man shall leave his father and mother, he shall do the what? cleaving to his wife, and then together they shall keep on becoming one flesh. Do you realize the man is the one who takes the initiation in all this, according to Genesis 2? He's the one that is promoting the relationship. He's the one that is trying to not only maintain a long-term relationship, but align himself closely to her. To get the idea of to dwell with is to really, the idea of be snuggled up real close. The word comes from the same idea that Jesus uses in John 15. Sometimes he talks about menno, abiding in me. And abiding, this idea of being really tight, being really close. It is the idea of keep on becoming one flesh. Now how does the guy do that? Okay? How is it that if the husband's responsible, well it means that you don't get angry and go tearing out of the house. You can't do that in the middle of a conflict. You're the one that's responsible to restore the harmony in the home. 
You're the one responsible to find and to initiate the restoration after a discussion. You're the one that instead of going to bed and you both each have your three inches on the, on the outside of the mattress and you want to sleep there for the rest of the night and you're going to feign sleeping and snoring so that while you know, she goes to sleep and you hear her sniffling, you leave this chasm there. It's your responsibility, man. You're the one that is supposed to take the initiative and say, okay, let's resolve this. That's what the Word of God is telling you with them, you're supposed to be bringing things together. You address the problems. You don't ignore it. And aren't we great, man? Aren't we wonderful at trying to just appease all the time? Aren't we fabulous that whatever she says, we'll, let it, we'll do it because we don't want a conflict. But it frustrates you that she's going to do what you don't stop and it bothers you and you blame her but you never said a word about it. Because you are playing the appeasement game. Because we men will do whatever we can to avoid a conflict. Even if we get, say, let's do it, let's go along, and we don't want it, we don't like it, and instead we're going to give her the silent treatment, the torture treatment, we're going to make this experience of going someplace that you didn't want to go, that you never talked about, but you're going to do the martyr complex that she dragged you for the whole night that we went to this concert, that I had to do so many things at home, but she made me do it. You're 45 years old, and your wife is saying, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you can't have no choice. Really? But then you're bitter about it. Well, the text says, you be the one that initiates and said, hey, listen, let's talk about this. This isn't my, my cup of tea. Let's talk about something we can find that we have more in common than some type of concert. That is, I'm going to get myself in trouble if I use the next words. Okay. <laughs> what else do you do? Learn your wife. Learn your wife. Okay. Dwell with them according to knowledge is the text. And that's the focus is getting to know your wife. Getting to know it's your duty to get to know about her. To find out her goals, her fears, her weaknesses. Do you know, do you know what makes your wife insecure? Do you know what she is really scared about as a mother? What she is the most concerned about? Have you ever sat and talked about it? Have you ever sat and talked about it and said, hey, listen... What, what is it in our relationship? Have you ever asked, in, the, in our relationship, what is the strength that you think in our relationship? What are the things that, that really have tickled you the most? Do you know that? Well, some of you are saying, it's me. I mean, you know, one more, I got the answer. It's me. Okay. What would she say? Well, yeah. Okay. But finding out, talking, encouraging, it requires communication. It requires that you talk. It requires that you study. I, I gave you this several years ago. A survey of Christian ladies that was done that said to the ladies, which one of these creates discouragement and depression in your life? And they gave them this random list of all these different things that they said, ladies, put these in order. What are the areas that if you had to identify the major problems, what would you say is number one problem, ladies? What would you say is number two problem? What would you say is the most discouraging? Number three, number four, number five, number six. And they had the ladies identify this. And then they showed this to the men. Needless to say, the men had almost an opposite order of the ladies. It's because we men don't always learn. In fact, sometimes we don't even listen. We had somebody in our house here just a few weeks ago. There is there. And, um, well, the kids were there. The kids were watching TV. And so I was sitting on the table. Can you see me if I sit down? I understand that if I go too low, you're going to get the bald part. I hate to give you just glow alone. Okay, so, so we were sitting there, and the kids were at the, the, the nook there in the kitchen, and they were watching a TV program. And I, mean, these I said, so how was your day? Oh, did you have fun playing with da-da-da-da-da-da? Yeah? Did you guys you know, go for a walk? No answer, no answer, no answer. So I just kept on asking. My wife was in the other room. She got the giggle fit so bad because the conversation just went downhill. And I was like, did you know you have a bug on your shoulder? I think there's a snake at your foot. If you turn your head right now, I'll give you $100. I'll make it 500 if both of you turn your head. After about 15, 20 minutes of this, my wife was laughing so hard that one of them said, what's the matter with you, Mrs. Burgraff? 
And she said, you. And uh, the kids were really frustrated that they missed $500 opportunity. <laughs> so we were talking with the parents shortly after that and saying, you know, because one of the parents came walking in and said, what is so funny? And we explained what was so funny. And then the kids looked at the parent and said, uh, and the parent fessed up. He said, many a day I sit at my computer and my wife will come up and talk to me. And then all of a sudden the kids are standing around me. He said, I have promised more things without knowing I have promised more things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Men get bolivious. You know what bolivious is? Oblivious is you just don't know what's going on. Bolivious is you're in Bolivar. Bolivia, excuse me. You're in Bolivia and you are so oblivious that you are out of the country. And so here he is. He said, I promised all kinds of stuff. So he said, you can't get after the kids too much because they learned it from me. Well, you know, we men are good at that, especially with our wives. We become bolivious to all kinds of things. What'd you figure out? What's the number one things? Did you, did you get an idea here of what you would say? Here's what the survey said. The ladies in response said that the major problems that they have are not what most we would think, physical or, or financial. That's not the issues. The ladies said this is what causes me the most discouragement. Number four was absence of romantic love. That's not sexual. And we're not talking sexual problems. We're talking romantic love, the hug, the kiss, I love you. Number three was loneliness, isolation, and boredom. To ladies who are married with kids? You can relate, can't you, ladies? Do you ever feel like you're locked in a chamber and don't have adult conversation for a long time? Number two was this, fatigue and time pressure. Wait a minute, wait a minute. The husband is to be the leader and he is to be protecting her. But number two was fatigue and time pressures. Number one was low self-esteem. Why would a wife have low self-esteem? It must be her parents' fault. She must have grew up in a home that she wasn't, she wasn't affirmed. You think that's the case? Or do you think it's because the husbands haven't learned to live with them the way the Bible says? In fact, the husbands have failed to do one area that I'm going to get to in a minute. Let me come back to this first. Ladies, you are taught in that passage in Titus that it says that what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to be an individual who is to love their husband, their children, to be sober, to be sensible. We talked about those things. To be chaste. It's the same thing Peter talks about. Holy living. It is the idea that you live in such a way that the word of God be not blasphemed. It is this idea of holiness in your life that realizes that you ladies, more than anybody else, and in this context, it's talking about unsaved people in your home, husband in particular, but what about the kids? That you, of all people in the home, seem to have the greatest opportunity, the greatest platform, the greatest preaching moment to your family than the, better than the men do. And he is saying, you therefore need to win your family to Christ. You need to do that, not by manipulation, not by coercion, not by threats, not by forcing or nagging. You do that by, you put an example of godliness. You portray Christ in your own life in such a way that you are living a sacred life, a holy life, a life where you are consistently godly in your speech and your conduct, that your entertainment is godly, that your jokes are godly, that your jesting about different activities is godly, that you don't make a fun, you don't make a joke of sinful activity, that you're given the Bible reading, that you appear Christ-like, that you are not obnoxious in regarding people's faith, that you are really concerned about expressing Christ to the kids, to your husband, and that you have a sensitivity in your own heart that you don't want to offend your maker. Sacredness. He says it's got to be taught. It's got to be taught to the ladies a chasteness, a holiness that the Spirit of God can bring into your life, but the older are to encourage the younger to be godly in an ungodly world. He's given to the men this final command. It's back in that first Peter. 
First Peter where it says that you are to give honor unto your wife as unto a weaker vessel. I get so tired of hearing from the commentaries and hearing from people that says that this passage is saying that ladies are weaker than men physically, that they are just such inferior beings. Well, there may be a little bit of truth to some of that, that bone structure and muscle structure is true, but, you know, we look at the text. And it's the text is talking about considering her as something really precious, lifting her up. By the way, the word precious here is the same thing in chapter 2, verse 7, talks about how we esteem Christ. That, and in this text where he's talking, First Peter, where he says that husbands give honor, I, I want you to catch something that I hadn't noticed until I did an in-depth study where it says in that verse, giving honor unto the wife, it's not a command. He doesn't say, man, I'm giving you a command, an imperative that you give honor unto the wife. It's not a command. It's, way, it's, it's phrased in such a way it says, dwell with them according to knowledge while you are giving honor unto the wife. He's assuming you're doing it. Which means God doesn't command it. He just assumes you're doing it. Which is stronger than a command. He assumes you men are lifting up your wives. That you are looking at her and saying that she is the weaker vessel. And again, I say that some people say the women are really, really weak. I don't think so when I saw my wife give birth to kids. There's a unique strength there. The idea of this weaker vessel is not the idea of something that is so fragile it might break. It is the idea of something that is so priceless that you highly value. Something that is a treasure. Let me see if I can illustrate. We were in Arizona a few years ago. We were visiting one of the kids there. And there was, we went to the Arizona Zoo and they had this, I'm going to say his name wrong, Dale Chihuly does blown glass and very famous around the world for it. And they had an art display that was blent in with the different things at the botanical garden that he blew some of the different glassware. And so it was just phenomenal that you go and it's all lit up and this guy is world renowned for what he does. So we went into the gift shop because they had some of the Dale Chihuly items on display. And we saw an item that was like a little vase or vase, okay, only about the size of your two hands put together. And it was called the um, seashell vase. And we looked at each other and said, you know, kind of a neat keepsake, wouldn't it? And she's very practical and deaf, so I, it's not that we need it. And I said, yeah, we, I know we don't. Just, I, I do this. The first thing I always look at when I look at an item is, I'm not the only one. Okay. <laughs> By the way, you do know if you have to ask, but I always ask. So Deb picked it up, and I looked at the price tag, and I said, put it down! <laughs> Don't touch it! You drop it, we buy it! That little vase was 500 bucks! Wow. Talk about blowing glass, well, that blew my budget! Okay. <laughs> it was this real fragile little item, okay, that was really priceless. Put it away, put it down gently, put it away. Move back three feet, Yeah. Get that, you know, kid stroller far away from this counter. Your wives are these, are these gentle glass items. He is saying you handle her with care. You lift her up in such a way that you protect her as a priceless item. You are keeping her from emotional attacks, family attacks. You don't let the kids attack your, mom, your, your wife. You, you don't attack your wife. You're the individual that you say, she is a precious commodity. She's not one of the guys. She's not one that you can just say, hey, come on, let's just, you know, we want to be best friends. Let's go play tackle football. Okay, no. You know, she's more than one of the buddies. I- I'm terrible at this. I am so terrible. I'll, I'll tell my horrible illustration. Otherwise, Deb will. We're, we're redoing our, one of our bedrooms in our old house. And I'm putting drywall up. I have no idea that you can buy rented stuff to put the dry. <laughs> what you... Alice was there. I know, I know. I understand. <laughs> you got to calm down. Okay. <laughs> You're just glad I'm telling this story for a change because it's usually you. I didn't know you can buy these lifts that lift the drywall to the ceiling. I just thought it was Alice and Deb. <laughs> Stand on kitchen chairs. Lift up the drywall. I'll screw it in. It was no problem. Alice is tough, okay? A <laughs> little short, okay? Drywall's about this far from the ceiling and she's stretching. 
we'll put two chairs on top of each other. There you go. <laughs> the only problem was you were eight months pregnant. Uh, oh, stop. Okay. <laughs> I gave her the bigger chair, you know, just because. Oh, that's worse. <laughs> that was worse. I didn't mean it quite that way. <laughs> uh, I'm not eating anything for dinner. <laughs> you treat her like a gentleman treats a lady. Okay? I'm not going to get through this. So we're just, I think we're done. Okay. You know the limits. Okay? What we're saying is, is you really, really, really elevate your wives. Not just in what you do, but your speech, your conduct, the compliments. You treat her like a lady. You make sure the kids see that you treat her like a lady. So you don't just do when you're in that bad mood, like I did to her just this week. Walk out the door, let the door fly in her face just because I'm grumpy. You don't do those things. You make sure what I try to do most all the time. You open the car door. You hold the door. You respect. You pull the chair. You compliment. You brag on. You don't tell stupid stories in a sermon that make it worse. Okay? <laughs> You value her as a treasure from God. See, these are the commands that God is saying, okay? If you and I are going to do what our jobs are, we do these things. We work at these areas. They aren't easy, but they're so vital. At any age, any time in our marriage, this is what we're going to work at. Then it'll impact what we do with our kids. But we start with our spouse. We value our spouse, and we say we're working on that person as being the most valued person.